0: Well, a few weeks ago, we were talking about the church in Sardis, and I asked you the question that if you had to die for your faith, would you be willing to die for the one who died for you? And we saw a tragic example of that on the news this past week with the shooting that happened in Oregon, where reportedly people were asked, are you a Christian? And if they said yes, they were uh, then shot. And as we've been going through this series in the book of Revelation, we, we know that it deals. Uh, With the upcoming end times that that are coming, and oftentimes we read these things and and we wonder, will they really apply to us? And as we saw last time, looking at the end time events, uh, you and I are living in a day and time where we're waiting for the return of Christ. And and the things are very pertinent to us, not just uh, the coming rapture and, and the coming rewards for those who are faithful, but even in the times in which we live. So as we go through this series in the seven churches in the book of Revelation, uh, I've been asking you to think of your own lives individually and say, is this something that applies to me? What would God say if he were writing this letter to me? And I want you to think of that again as we turn in our Bible today to Revelation chapter three, because here we're looking at the church, uh, the letter to the church at Sardis. And as we look at this letter today, it's the first time in five letters that Jesus Christ has no words of commendation for the Christians who are there. Uh, Jesus tells him that they belong more in a mortuary than a sanctuary, because even though they claim to be alive, he says, you're dead spiritually. And as we read Christ's words of warning, I want us again to look at our lives and ask if God were to take our spiritual pulse this morning. Would he say to us that we're on spiritual life support? Uh, Or would he have words of commendation for us saying that we're alive and growing in our walk with him? I want you to look with me as we read verses 1 through 6 of Revelation chapter 3. Jesus says unto the angel of the church in Sardis, Write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds and that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. "'Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die, "'for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. "'Remember, therefore, from what you have received and heard, "'and keep it and repent. "'If, therefore, you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, "'and you will not know at which hour I will come upon you. "'But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, "'and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy.' He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before the angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." Now, as Jesus is writing to the churches, as we've seen in chapters 2 through 3, now as we enter into this, we're we're dealing with seven local bodies of believers. These were literal churches in local cities that were located over in the area of modern day Turkey. They're located in a geographic circle. And today we come to the city of Sardis. This is located uh, 30 miles south of Thyatira that we looked at last time, and this was an ancient and glorious city. Here's a picture of the ruins from this city. It was high up on a, a massive cliff. This is the, the fortress. The city, as it grew, expanded to the valley below, but it was a fortress city. It was the capital of the Lydian Empire at one point. And so it was a glorious city. There was a, a river that went around the base of the city called the Poctolus River, and it not only served as a natural moat to help protect this uh, city and fortress, but it was also a source of great wealth. It, it had gold in it. And those in Sardis minted the gold, and they were the first to invent what we would term modern money as they uh, minted coins. The city was also known for the wool and the textiles uh, that were produced there. Another thing that Sardis was known for was death, not just in terms of the spiritual death as we read, but there's a cemetery there called the necropolis. It means the city of the dead. And there are are all these burial mounds, so from a distance it looks like the skyline of a city, which is why it's called the city of the dead. Now, as Jesus talks to them, he says that you're, you're spiritually dead, and death is defined by when the spirit leaves our body. And as Jesus writes to this dying church, he reminds them of the life that they could have. He speaks of the seven spirits of God. Now, the number seven in Scripture is, is used in terms of perfection and fullness. Threes and sevens are numbers often associated with God. You think of the number of perfection as seven, seven, seven. Now, when we think of the Spirit of God, uh, we're, we're dealing with the Holy Spirit. In Revelation 4 or 5, he speaks of the uh, seven lamps of fire. And then in Revelation 5, 6, he describes the seven eyes, the all-seeing eyes of God. In Isaiah chapter 11, we find the Messiah uh, mentioned being full of the Holy Spirit. And these are the names that are used of the Spirit of God, the Lord, wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge in the fear of the Lord. So as we're looking at this, Christ is also described as holding the seven stars. In Revelation 1.20, he says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And you'll recall as we've gone through this city that we've seen the Greek word for angel, angelos, uh, speaks of a messenger. And it can speak of an angelic messenger, as we often think of, like Gabriel, who came and announced to Mary the birth of the coming uh, Savior, Jesus Christ. But it is also used of human messengers. And this is, as God writes to the the messenger of each church, we've seen that this is the, the pastor or the teaching elder of each of these local bodies. They were receiving this letter that was sent through the Apostle John, who was writing, as you'll recall, from exile on the Isle of Patmos. And as these letters would come to the pastor, he would then read it, share it with the congregation. And so as we think in terms of the seven stars, uh, the the messengers of God, uh, you'll recall he also described the seven churches as being lampstands. And when a church is dying, sometimes it's, it's tied to the pastor. Uh, It's the fault of the person who is in the pulpit, because it may be a pastor who does not teach the word of God, and thus the congregation is not well fed, and they begin to die spiritually. Now, sometimes it's the fault of the congregation. You may have a pastor who is teaching the word. You'll recall each of these letters is telling us, he who has an ear, let him hear. God is saying you're hearing the word of God, but that, that, that means how are you personally applying it in your life? And so sometimes the church is dying because people are not open to receiving and living out the truth. And what God says is whether it's the case of the pastor or the people in the pews, uh, either way, God says, when a church turns from him, he can, he can remove that church. He can remove the pastor out of the pulpit as he removes that messenger, or he can remove the lampstand Uh, and just shut down the entire local body, uh, as we saw in Revelation 2.5, where he warns he will come and remove their lampstand. Now, as Jesus speaks to this church at Sardis, he says in Revelation 3.1, I know your deeds, that you have a name. This means a reputation. He says you have a a reputation that you are alive, but you are dead. In, In the past, Sardis, as I told you, was a royal city. It was the capital of the Lydian Empire. They were uh, the significant city in the in the region, but Rome, you'll recall, at this point in ninety AD, as these letters have been written, has taken over, and they've set up a regional capital. It's not uh, Sardis. This is a city that has gone into decline, and so um, and and this had been happening before ninety AD. In twenty nine AD, though, they applied to the Roman Senate to allow them to build a temple to Caesar to be the place of emperor worship, but uh, the emperor decided Sardis had declined in significance and they were not worthy to have a temple there. So their reputation in the past had been one of greatness, but now they were like an athlete that's past their prime, and all they could do is remember the glory days and point back to how great they used to be. And the church there was like that. He says, you had a name, a reputation from the past, uh, but now you're seen as being dead. Wayside Chapel is 55 years old, and as you think about a church being 55 years old, for some that doesn't seem very long, but statistically the average church uh, peaks and begins to go into a period of steep decline, if not death, at 30 years of age. So for Wayside to be almost double the statistical average of the death or decline of a church is very significant. Uh, When we look at Wayside Chapel today, we're not a church that is preparing for a burial. In fact, what we are having to deal with is accommodating growth. Now, if you're visiting today, you're looking around saying, yeah, but I see empty seats. Well, if you come at the 11 o'clock service, this place is overflowing. And if you come during the midweek, this place is overflowing. And this is a very significant size congregation. The average church in America is about 100 people. And so you can walk into a church uh, like this and, and just think this is the normal uh, church in America, but it's not. And so as we look at Wayside today, I share all this to say that we, we can be a church that is in danger, just like those in Sardis, that look around and say, hey, we're doing great. Or to look back on our glory days and say, you know, we've, we are a church with a name. We're known in the city and we're known around the world uh, for our involvement in evangelism and missions and other things. But what God says to us is uh, we're not to rest on our past glory. And as I think in terms of Wayside Chapel, what is it that keeps us going and growing? I believe it's tied to our vision statement. Our vision says that Wayside Chapel is a community rooted in the word, reaching out to the world, reproducing Christ's followers. And as you look at this, the first part of our, our vision is to be a community. And that's where we create a community here within the doors of Wayside in order to reach out to the community. And as I think in terms of what a community looks like, I was reminded of that yet again before the service. Uh, I told Pastor Rick, I said, there, there are walking miracles among us this morning. I see Leonard and Carol Ziddle. I see uh, Glenn and Emmerlyn Schaefer. I see Jack Bigby. I could go around the room and talk about those who are, are battling uh, life uh, diseases that doctors even are saying the only reason you're still here uh, is because people are praying for you. And it is this community that is supporting and, and reaching out Uh, to one another in doing this. It's what happened yesterday. As Pastor Rick was saying, we had our our day of service, and we reached out into the community around us, serving various uh, places in this city and individuals in our uh, community. There were work teams that went to homes of widows to help them with things. We were in the commons of Castle Hills. It was what happened on Friday night. Many of you are not even aware we hosted uh the sheriff's chaplain dinner here in our city uh Sheriff Susan Parmalo was here uh with 40 plus chaplains for the sheriff's department and their spouses and Wayside hosted a dinner just to thank those pastors that are ministering to the officers of the Bear County Sheriff's Department and these are just many things that we are doing in the the city as we're reaching into the community and these are some of the things that that give us the opportunity to be a lighthouse in this city we're rooted in the word, and that's a dual meaning. What it means is we want to lead people to a relationship with the living word, Jesus Christ. Uh, we want people to know the one who is called. In John 1.1, 1, 1, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And so we want to see people come to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And there is not uh, a week that goes by on average that we don't see somebody come to Christ in our services, in a midweek activity, uh, through other avenues of this church, outreaches that we're doing. And once somebody comes to a a relationship with the living word, Jesus Christ, we want them to then be in an abiding relationship with the written word of God. We teach the Bible uh, not to fill our heads with knowledge, but to fill our heads with knowledge that then travels 18 inches to our heart and is then demonstrated in our lives. And that's what uh, reaching out to the world is. Jesus says in the scriptures that when we abide in the vine, we will be fruitful and will bear much fruit. And where you picture a tree that sings deep roots into the soil, and then it grows and it reaches out and it becomes abundant in the fruit it's producing. And so we reach out to the world uh, locally. Our, our mission strategy is Acts 1-8 to start locally and go globally. And so we reach out to our community and we reach out to the uttermost parts of the earth. And then we want everybody to be reproducing Christ followers. It's not coming to to watch what is happening, but we want you to be growing in your own personal walk so that you can then become reproducing Christ followers. And what I would ask you to do, um, you don't have to do it even today, and you may say, I'm not going to physically do it, but think of taking out a piece of paper and writing down the vision statement. And asking yourself, how are you personally fulfilling it? Ask yourself, how are you being a part of the community? What are tangible ways that you are reaching out uh, to others around you here at Wayside? How are you building community? Or how are you engaging in reaching out to the community? What are the places you're serving? Uh, Our vision statement is not about just what happens inside the four walls of Wayside. It's about how are you serving in the various opportunities in our community? And so how are you being part of the community and reaching the community? How are you being rooted in the word? Are you personally studying the scripture? Are you memorizing God's word? Are you somebody who is uh, abiding in it so you can then be reaching out to the world? Ask yourself, how are you doing that uh, in terms of mentoring others? Are you involved in teaching Sunday school, uh, mentoring the students in the children's ministry, in the middle school, in the high school, in the collegiate ministry here? How are you personally involved in in being rooted in the Word and sharing what you know? How are you reaching out? What are the ways that you're involved? Uh, Is it it through financially supporting the church and its ministries and our missionaries? Is it ways that you are personally sharing your faith in your workplaces, your schools, your neighborhoods? How are you that reproducing Christ follower? What what are the things that you are doing? Now, as you think about... um, Reaching out to the world, some of you may say this morning, well, Roger, I don't really reach out because I'm kind of dry. I'm kind of like the church at Sardis. Uh, I've got a sponge here. It's kind of hard. It's, uh, it's dry. And some of you maybe, as you walked in here this morning, feel like this sponge. You're saying, you know, right now, Roger, I'm spiritually dry. There's not much in my life. If, if I'm to, to share this with everybody else, there, there's not a, a drop that can come. And and the picture that God gives to us is that when we abide in him, this is just a a pan of water and a a sponge as it's here, uh, immersed abiding in the water. What it, what it does is it's suddenly full and you, you could picture a couple of plants up here. And if I were to go and start to water the plants by squeezing out what I have in each of the plants, what it's going to do is help those individual plants begin to grow. And, and by squeezing out the water, Uh, In those other plants, you know what else it does for me? If you picture your life as being this sponge if if you squeeze out a sponge uh, It's now receptive to once again receive more water And as you picture your life when you come to church on Sunday uh, It's like this you're being immersed in God's Word. You're being uh, Immersed in fellowship and being encouraged by one another and what God says to us is he wants us to be like this sponge where we are abiding in his word, where we're growing. Now, the problem with a sponge, as you know, is if if you were to soak everything up and then just sit, think of a sponge you maybe have had in your kitchen that you've used. And say you soak up a mess in the kitchen, you set it aside, you don't rinse it out and squeeze it out and do things. What happens to that sponge? Yeah, it stinks, somebody said. And and that's the picture of what can happen to us as believers. Uh, You've heard me talk about God doesn't want us to sit, soak, and sour. And it's very easy for Christians sometimes to get big-headed in the Word, to fill up on knowledge and become very proud. And what God says is, I didn't fill you up in order to sit, soak, and sour. I filled you up to go around and distribute what I've taught you, what you know to be a light in the community, to be those who are sharing uh, what you have among other people. Uh, another way to think in terms of this is uh, imagine that you're in the grocery store and you go to buy bread. Now, as you walk up to the shelf, uh, if you're like me, you kind of uh, start looking at the dates. You, people squeeze, the, you, you see all kinds of people. Some people abuse the bread, you know, they just kind of, how soft is it? And, but if you go to the grocery store, do you look for the hardest? Stalest, most moldy uh, loaf of bread? Is that what you're looking to buy? No. We want, we want something that is fresh. You know how grocery stores uh, keep the bread fresh? They rotate the stock. You see, what they do is they stock the shelves, and then they want people to come in and buy it. But if bread hasn't been bought, uh, they will even come in and take the old bread off to put new bread on. And again, as you think in terms of your life spiritually, sometimes what God says to us is we we need to be rotating the stock. Because when you come in here on a Sunday, you're getting fed. You're getting filled up with God's word. But the question I have for you is how often are you then distributing it to others? How often are you rotating the stock? You see, one of the things that that forces me to continue to, to stay fresh in God's word or to grow are the questions that are asked. When you teach the Bible, people will come with additional questions, and, and it forces you sometimes to go back and say, that's a great question. I need to do a little more research. Or if you know, if you're in a mentoring relationship and you're saying, this person is hungry to grow and they're going to be kind of pushing me because I know each week I better come with new uh, information to share with them, uh, it's going to help you to grow as you're rotating the stock. So if you find that your your faith has grown stale and stagnant, ask yourself if you've been squeezing out the sponge or rotating the stock in your own life. Now, if you feel like you've just been sitting here in the pews and that you're stale and stagnant, I've got good news for you. It doesn't have to be a terminal condition. I want to share with you a letter that I received from a, a lady in our church. She said, Dear Pastor Roger, I'm writing to let you know of something exciting that happened to me. In the past, when you preach, you would tell us to tell someone what God did when the Father sent Jesus to die on the cross. She says, I would feel convicted. I would say, I need to do that, but then I wouldn't follow through. And some of you are thinking, is he reading my mail? Um, she goes, a few weeks later, you would say it again, and I would again feel convicted that God wants me to do it, but then I would forget. I would come again, and you would ask again, are you sharing your faith? To quit feeling guilty, I finally did it to get it over with. (laughs) Now, that's the kind of response that just warms a pastor's heart. Uh, But listen what happened when she did. When I did, the other lady I told prayed to make Jesus her Savior. Keep telling us what God wants us to do. Now I want to do it again. I only wish I had started before I turned 67. Now I don't have as much time to tell other people. Some of you may be sitting here this morning saying, I'm too old to get in the game. No, you're not. Some of you may be sitting here saying, I don't know what to say. If you can say to somebody, I read about you in the Bible today, their natural response to you is going to be, well, what did you read? If I walked up to you and said, I read about you in the Bible, aren't you going to want to know what I read? And I just take people to John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. And I tell the person you're in the world. So for God so loved you that he gave his only begotten son that if, and I insert their name there, if Roger will believe in Jesus, it says for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that if you will believe what will happen, you will have eternal life. And then I say to the person, have you ever received that great gift? You can share the gospel in 30 seconds or less. You can do it in an elevator. You can do it when you're standing in the hallway with somebody. And it's just an opportunity to open the door and begin to share your faith. You you can share your story. You don't have to go into deep apologetics. All you have to do is say, let me tell you what God did in my life. And you have the opportunity to share God's word. Now... As we think in terms of those in Sardis, they were those who were not soaking up and squeezing out the sponge. In fact, rigor mortis was setting in. And as this was happening, did you notice what Satan was doing? What was Satan doing to the church in Sardis? Did Jesus say they were undergoing persecution and suffering like several of the other churches we've previously seen? No. It says Satan was doing nothing. Nothing. Have you ever heard the saying, it's best to let sleeping dogs lie? Because when you go and you poke a sleeping dog, what can happen? It can bite you. It can become a problem. And Satan was very content to leave the church in Sardis alone. He said, you guys are sleeping. You're not impacting the territory. You're not a threat to me. So I'm just going to leave you all alone. And God says to those in Sardis, I want you to wake up. There was a pastor who was being examined by his doctor one day. And, and the, the doctor said to him, do you talk in your sleep? And the pastor said, no, but I do a lot of talking in other people's sleep. <laughs> one, one of the theme verses for pastors is Mark fourteen thirty seven. Could you not stay awake for one hour? We, we want to put that across the front of a church. You know, when you're preaching, sometimes you look out and you see people are sleeping. And that's okay, as long as you don't snore and disturb the people around you. If you've had a hard week and this is your recoup time. But what Jesus says to those in Sardis is, wake up. Jesus says in Revelation 3, 2, wake up and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. As he looked at the church there, remember they were a church that had a reputation, a name. They used to be vibrant. They used to be impacting the territory. And what Jesus says to them is, you you have the ability to, to change that. The word repent is used. Repent means where we stop, we turn around, and we go back in the other direction. Now, as Jesus writes these words to the church in Sardis, and he tells them to wake up, it would have sent chills down the spine of the people in Sardis. Because you'll remember what Sardis looked like. Sardis was this impenetrable fortress high up on a mountain. It was, it was impossible to get in and defeat, and yet history tells us that the city of Sardis fell twice. And the way that the city of Sardis fell the first time was in 549 B.C. when King Cyrus of Persia was coming to try to conquer the Lydian Empire. And as he laid siege to the city, he couldn't get into it. And he promised riches to anyone in his army who could get inside the city and help it be conquered. And one night there was a soldier in Cyrus' army by the name of Herodias. He he saw, he was on the night watch and he was looking up and he saw a Lydian soldier who was high up on the battlements. And this soldier, uh, for whatever reason, whether he got sleepy or he was looking over the edge of the cliff, his helmet fell off. And his helmet tumbled all the way down that cliff to the base. And this soldier in Cyrus' army simply stayed in the shadows and watched what happened. And after a while, this Lydian soldier's looking around and probably fearing the the reprimand he would have for losing a piece of his, his equipment. He climbed over the wall of the city and he picked his way down the cliffs in a secret path that was there. And as he got to the bottom, he picked up his helmet and he walked back up the side of the cliff and climbed back over the wall of the city. The next night, this soldier Herodias had gathered together a a small group of soldiers and he led them up this secret path. And when they got to the walls of the city, they found them unguarded and they climbed over the wall. They opened the gates and the army was able to come in and defeat the city at night while everyone was sleeping. A similar thing happened 200 years later when Sardis fell again while they were sleeping. And so as they received this letter saying, wake up, you're in danger of dying, it was something that spoke directly to the culture of that city. God says to those in Sardis as well as us today who may be complacent in our Christianity, we need to wake up. We need to be aware of what can happen if we are spiritually complacent, if we're sleeping. It's been said that the job of a pastor is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And so some weeks people will say to me, you know, you really stepped on my toes this Sunday with what you were saying. And and I say to them, well, I'm sorry, I was aiming for your heart. (laughs) And so if ever you feel afflicted by me, uh, by what I'm sharing, I hope that's the conviction of God and the Holy Spirit saying to you that something needs to change in your life. And so as we look at the letter to the church at Sardis, it's a word of warning not to us individually, but also as a church. It would be very easy for Wayside at this point in our history to say, you know, things are great. We're growing. We're at capacity. As we finish our budget year this Sunday, by the generosity of your giving and the grace of God, we're finishing ahead of budget. It would be very easy for us to say, everything is going great, so let's just coast along Be careful, Roger, not to rock the boat. Don't do anything that are going to upset and make people mad. But what God tells us instead is don't rest on the past. That budget year is over. That part of your chapter of your history is over. Uh, A new day starts today. Each day when we get up, it's the first day of the rest of our life, and we have to determine how am I going to spend what God has given me today and going forward. And so as Jesus speaks to those in Sardis, he says, I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Now, this again is another interesting allusion to the history of the city. I told you that Sardis was this significant city. Archaeologists have uncovered the ruins of this temple to Artemis. Now, Artemis, or the temple of Diana, as you'll recall, was also found in the city of Ephesus. There in Ephesus, they had built this temple that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And there in Sardis, they tried to build a competing structure uh, that would be as glorious as the one uh, to, that was in Ephesus. But they never finished the work. They laid the foundation. They put up some of the initial columns. They, they put this pagan goddess statue up. And history tells us that it stared out over the unfinished work with unseen eyes. The temple there was never finished. And so again, as God says to them, your work for me is unfinished. They had a reminder of the pagan temple there to a pagan God that was unfinished. Now you see the ruins of a fourth century church that was built uh, adjacent to this temple. And so what God is saying to them in Sardis is uh, there are things they need to be doing. And it's the same for you and I today as Christians. God tells us in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Dead people don't walk. And he says to us as believers, we are to be alive, awake. We are to be walking. We are to be working for him. We are to be be doing the work that God has for us to be doing. So as you look at your life today, would you say that you're active for the cause of Christ? Or are you more like a corpse in the congregation that is simply taking up space? that has grown stale and stagnant in your walk. God says to us today, we need to wake up. We need to continue to be used for him, by him. If you still have breath in your body, you have the ability to be used by God, whether it's through sharing your faith or through the way you live your life, through your love and your service to others, to be a lighthouse. Revelation 3.3 3 tells us, Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, and keep it and repent. If therefore you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. When we look at this letter, uh, remember the one to the church at Ephesus? He told them there to remember, repent, and repeat what they were doing. And here he says something similar. He says, Remember what you have received, hold on to it, and repent. When is the last time you stopped and remembered all that you've received from God? Just the blessings that we have as believers, things like the gift of eternal life, things like forgiveness for our sins, things like being adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God, the gift of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, the spiritual gifts God has given to every one of us as a Christian that are to be used by him and for him, the scriptures, God's word that we've been given to guide us, encourage us, strengthen us. God says, remember, remember what I've given you, And then use it. Are you strengthening the things that you have by learning more about God's word, applying it in your life, sharing it with others where God has you? God says, if you're not doing these things, repent. Repent, stop, turn around, and go back and do the things that you need to do. He's calling us not only to turn back from our sins of commission, the things we do, but also the sins of omission the times where we uh, are not doing what God calls us to do. Christ warned those in Sardis that the time was now to make changes. He said, judgment is coming like a thief in the night when we least expect it. Now, as we look at verses 4 and 5, we see there was a small remnant there in Sardis who were faithful. God says, but you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. We've read several times in the past letters, 1 John 5, 4 through 5, and it tells us that an overcomer is a person who has placed his or her faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so what God says to us is, uh, we who have received Jesus as our personal Savior, we're an overcomer. And he says that there is a reward. When he says we will walk with a white garment and walk with him, again, these were things that spoke to those in Sardis. Remember, they were known for the the wool and the textiles they produced there. They were famous for a white garment that was made there in Sardis. And there was something called the Roman Day of Triumph. It was a national holiday where everyone who was a citizen of Rome would put on their white toga And they would go out to a parade, and the the conquering general of the area would come, and a select few were given the privilege of parading with him through the streets uh, to to show that they were part of the victory that had occurred. And this is an image of something we saw earlier when we looked at the end-time events. You'll recall that we saw that Jesus Christ is going to return. There will be a, a day of triumph, so to speak, when Jesus Christ, the conquering general, returns. At his second coming, we saw in Revelation 19.14, it says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Our white robes are not from Sardis. Our white robes will be from Revelation 7.14, where it says that they have been whitened by being washed in the blood of the Lamb. When Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty of death for our sins, he washed away our sins. We sing about how our sins were like scarlet, but now they've been made white as snow. We will wear white garments as believers who will return with Christ. It will be a day of triumph as we return from heaven to earth for the millennial kingdom that we talked about previously. In Revelation 3.5, Jesus mentions another promise. He says, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. In ancient Asiatic towns like Sardis, they, they had a book in the city hall, so to speak, and everybody who was born in that city, their name was physically recorded in the book. It showed their citizenship in that, in that city. And there was one of two ways that your name would be removed from the book. One is if you committed a crime, you were convicted of a crime, your citizenship was removed, you were erased out of the book. You had dishonored the city, you were, you were removed from it. The other way was when you died physically. It was a record of the city, and they would remove your name when you died. Now, your name could remain in the book for, for perpetuity if you had done some noble or significant deed. They would overlay your name in gold, or they would circle it, and it would, it would never be erased from the book. And in the Bible, we're told that there is a Lamb's book of life, that when we are a believer in Jesus Christ, our name is recorded in God's heavenly book. And God tells us our name will never be erased from the book. Even when we sin, God does not remove our name. Even when we die physically, God does not remove our name. That's when we have our promotion, when we uh, enter into our eternal uh, state where we will be with God forever. In Revelation 3, 5, Jesus says, our name will never be erased. He uses the Greek words, me, gonoita. He says, ou may. He uses a double negative. And that literally means never, ever, God will never, ever erase your name or my name as a Christian from the book of life. We see that in Romans 8, 1, where it says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Read down to the end of Romans chapter 8. You get to Romans eight thirty eight and 39, and it gives a whole list of things. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor height, nor depth. It says, nor any other created thing will ever be able to remove us from the love of God. The love of God is described for us in Romans, I'm sorry, in John 10, 28 through 29. Jesus says, and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You can picture the nail-scarred hand of Jesus Christ, and when you place your faith in Jesus, you are placed in his hand. And Jesus says, I close my hand around you. And then God the Father closes his hand around, and he says, no one can take you out of my hand. Remember, the end of Romans says, nor any created thing. That means you and I who are created, we can't even crawl out of God's hand. He says, I paid too high a price for you. I will never, ever let you go. John 5.24 tells us that when we come to faith in Christ, it says we have passed out of death into life. And the form of the Greek verb there is a one-time action. It means we have gone from death to life and we can never again go back. You cannot lose your salvation. Once you are saved, placing your faith in Jesus, you are saved for eternity. Now, as we talked about in a previous sermon, we can lose our rewards, but we cannot lose our citizenship in heaven. Now, in contrast to the Christian who has the assurance that he or she will be home with the Lord in heaven, the Bible says the unbeliever those who have not come to faith in Jesus Christ, he says their name is not in the book of life. In fact, in Revelation twenty fifteen, it tells us, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's hell. Jesus says for the believer in Revelation 3, 5, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. The, the Greek word that is used means to acknowledge before the courts. When he says, I will confess your name, he says, I will acknowledge you before the courts. And this speaks of a heavenly trial uh, that could take place. And it says, our legal standing before God is that the penalty has been paid in full. We're about to come to the communion table. And as we do, we're reminded of how our legal standing was paid for. We find it in 1 John 2, 2, where it says, and he himself, this is speaking of Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for all who believe. When it says that God is the propitiation for our faith, that's a big word. It's a fancy word. And it's a beautiful word. Because the word propitiation means to not only pay the legal penalty that was due. The Bible tells us, for the wages of sin is death. That is a legal penalty owed. We are separated from God for all eternity because as sinners, our sin separates us from God. And the way that the sin has to be paid for is through blood. The book of Hebrews says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sins. And Jesus Christ came and he took our place. He paid our penalty of death. Now, in legal terms, that's called expiation, When you expiate a penalty, it means you meet the legal requirement for the payment. But it doesn't remove the wrath. It simply satisfies the legal penalty. Propitiation means that you have satisfied the wrath that goes with it. Imagine a factory worker who is injured. And this person, because of the negligence of the company, the machine malfunctioned and they were hurt. And a trial is found that the company was guilty of not maintaining the equipment. And so they say there are millions of dollars in penalty that have to be paid for uh, your negligence. That's expiation. The company can expiate the penalty, pay the fine. But the injured worker, when he or she is at home, every time they hear the name of the company, every time they see a product made by it, they feel this wrath because they're now mangled for life. Propitiation means the wrath is removed. The ill feelings are gone. There is no longer a brokenness in the relationship. When Jesus Christ came and he died for us, he paid the penalty, the penalty of death that was owed. But he went beyond meeting the legal requirement. God doesn't say to us when we get home to heaven, go sit in the corner and be quiet. You're lucky you're here. I don't want to even look at you. What he says is, you're my son. You're my daughter. Welcome home. Jesus has propitiated our sin. He has paid the penalty. He has removed not only the obligation, but also the wrath. That's what we're reminded of as we come to the table today. The piece of bread you're about to receive represents the body of Christ. The, the body that was given to Jesus who went to the cross as he allowed himself to be nailed up there to be the payment for our penalty. The cup you're going to hold represents his blood, his blood that was shed again to wash away our sins, to propitiate, to pay the penalty. But it represents more than that. It represents the restoration of our relationship. So if you're here today and you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, if you've never accepted him as your Savior, I invite you today to take the cup, to take the bread as it's passed, and to hold on to those and say, God, I'm a sinner and I recognize I need you. I need you to be my Savior, to pay my penalty of death, to cover that chasm of sin, that separation from me to you through my sin. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Today, God, I'm a part of your family. I'm your son, I'm your daughter, welcomed home into heaven because of what my Savior Jesus did. For the rest of us who have received God in the past through his Son, Jesus, as our Savior, I want you to take those elements as well and hold them. And as you do, I want you to say to to God, thank you. Thank you for not only paying the penalty, but thank you for restoring my relationship with you. Take this time now, as the elements are passed, to, to confess your sins to God, to use this as a time of thanksgiving. This is an open table. All who are believers in Jesus Christ are welcome to partake. Men, will you service, please? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The body of Christ seated in remembrance of him. As John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, he said to those who are around, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The cup we hold here reminds us of how our sins were removed as far as the east is from the west through the shedding of the blood of the Lamb of God. Drink it in remembrance of him. Join me, please, as we close in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for the gift of your Son. Your Son that demonstrated your great love for us as Romans 5.8 says, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We thank you, God, for the forgiveness of sins that is available through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. May we who have received that great gift of life and grace go into the world and share it with the world who needs to know that there is hope, there is healing, there is a future that comes through the Lord of life, Jesus. So may we be faithful witnesses to go out of here and into the world and share that good news. We pray this in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.